0: This episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is in honor of Michael Murphy, Matthew Axelson, Danny Dietz, Eric Christensen, Michael McGreevy Jr., Daniel Healy, Jock Fonten, Jeffrey Lucas, Jeffrey Taylor, Shane Patton, James Sue, Seamus Gore, Corey Goodnature, Kip Jacobi, Marcus Morales, Stephen Reich. Michael Russell, Chris Scherenbach, and James Ponder. June 28th, 2005, four Navy SEALs were embedded in the Hindu Kush Mountains of Afghanistan. It was Operation Red Wings. The story of that fateful day has been told on this podcast on a few occasions. First, the perspective of Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Spanky Peterson, who flew the Pavehawk that ultimately rescued the lone survivor, Marcus Luttrell. We've also heard from Mike Murphy's dad about his son's fateful acts that ultimately led to Mike receiving the Medal of Honor. Today, we're joined by Matt Brady. He flew the Chinook helicopter that embedded those four SEALs, and when they were compromised, he was ready to go back in and get them. We pick up the story there on the 17th anniversary of Operation Red Wings. This is Pick Up the Six Podcast. Brian Jodis back once again for another episode of Pick Up the Six podcast. It is the 28th of June. And as you know, uh, if you're loyal, Pick Up the Six listeners. And even if you're new to the show, we always take some intentional time today specifically. And you guys have listened. We do a lot here to honor the fallen and remember those who pay the ultimate price, made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. But today is sort of a special day uh, for us. And, And we often, with intentionality, lean in and and talk about the heroes of Operation Red Wings, which was 28 June 2005. And if you go back to episode two of our show, we talked a lot about that fateful day with Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Spanky Peterson, who flew the PAFOC helicopter that ultimately picked up the lone survivor of that mission, Marcus Luttrell. And I'll paint the picture because we've got an incredible guest today. That was a big part of the activity of that day. His name is Matt Brady. But you remember, it's 28 June 2005, and four Navy SEALs are embedded in the Afghan mountains, really with a mission to go uh, take out some high-level Taliban targets. That mission goes south when they are compromised uh, by an old man uh, and two boys that are essentially moving some goats to the mountains. They choose to let those three go, which is the right move. And then they are uh, met with major opposition uh, from the enemy. Uh, And three of those men were killed in that fight. One survived. It's Marcus Luttrell. And then 16 others ultimately paid the price as well uh, on a mission to retrieve them. And a guy that was a part of that uh, and a part of the days before and that day and days after is Matt Brady, who joins us. And Matt, we're grateful that you're joining us today uh, on Pick Up the Six podcast to share your story and to talk a little bit about those heroes of Red Wing. So thank you, brother.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Good to join you.
0: Absolutely. I hope I painted a, a pretty decent picture as to what had happened on that day. And again, guys, to, to do a real in-depth Spanky and I run for almost an hour talking about. It. So there's a lot of just moving parts that are part of it. and Matt was part mm-hmm. of it as well. But Matt, before we talk about that, man, when and why yep. did you get into the Army? And then tell me about what led you to the Night Stalkers, right? Those big Chinook helicopters.
1: Yeah, gosh. Well, you know, I appreciate you, first of all, having me on Ryan and give me a chance to speak about this operation that there were so many people involved, uh, so many people that that lost their lives. Um, and I think, you know, that's why we talk about this every mm-hmm. year is to honor them, remember them. Um, it's easy to kind of uh, distill everything down into a, into a situation report, right? Here are the facts, here's what happened. Um, and it's a little bit harder to just take a minute and reflect and think back and Think through everything we were kind of feeling at the time, thinking about the things we didn't know, which we now do know, right? And so, as the as the mission unfold unfolded, um, just coming to terms with what reality was and how to best uh, achieve the advantage on the battlefield. So, yeah, um, very much a multi dimensional day uh, filled with high emotion, high risk, and it's just you know, it's good to just go back and reflect. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I, I joined the, the Army out of uh, out of West Point, um, uh, spent four years there at the Military Academy, wasn't really ever supposed to get into that institution. I graduated high school with a 2.7 grade point average. It was uh, an embarrassment to myself and my, my parents. So I did, I did two years of uh, damage control at a junior college before mm-hmm. finally um, being able to, to, to meet the admissions requirements. But um, one of the things they do while at the Military Academy is they'll have uh, various demonstrations before the big game. The big game of course is the Army Navy game. Mm-hmm. Uh and this particular year, my junior year, uh right before we, before we were supposed to pick our branches where we would serve for the rest of our career, uh they they did a demonstration for the Army Navy game and it was put on by the US Army Night Stalkers. So um you know, a, a highly highly technical uh specialized helicopter force uh, and their demonstration involved uh, a a Chinook and a Black Hawk helicopter filled with rangers. Um, the demonstration <laughs> consisted of flying into the vast expanse of, of parade field in front of the, the military academy. And, and to, you know, they, they, we were, we were all standing out there watching as cadets. We didn't know what was going to occur, who mm-hmm. was going to do what during this demo. And all of a sudden we see these black uh, helicopters show up and put rangers on the ground very, very quickly and before we could blink an eye, they were, uh, they were gone up until that point I was determined to be an infantry officer and be one of those Rangers on the ground. But when I saw what those nice stalkers did and the equipment that they used, and the manner in which they, they used them with such precision, I changed my mind on the spot. So, so that day um, at the Academy, I decided I'm not going to be an infantry officer. I'm going to be an aviator and whoever that, whoever that group is, I'm going to be part of that group. Um, When I went down to the staging area at West point the next day, as they were, uh, gearing up for their actual event. So what we had witnessed was the demonstration or the, I, I, the the practice for the demonstration. The actual demonstration was going to be the next day. When I went to the staging area to find out exactly who these men were and how they did it, um, that is the first time I met the men from 3rd Battalion 160th in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, guys like Mike Russell, Sergeant Russell, uh, was there flying, you know, crewing his aircraft. Uh, And the pilots and everyone uh, that that went along with that particular aircraft. And so, you know, as as time would tell, I I would join the night stalkers and and work side by side with Mike Russell uh, in First Platoon Bravo Company at Third Battalion One Hundred Sixtieth. But meeting him that day, um, and of course, obviously all this before we would both work again together on Red Wings. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just funny how things you know line up and. And that was sort of my first uh, first notion that hey, this is what I wanted to do, and these are the men I want to work with.
0: So you got this vision right of being infantry, and then you see those beasts come in, and you're like, oh, that's it, right? That's right, for me. Right.
1: And, and Mike and Mike Russell, my platoon sergeant, um, who of course lost his life on on Red Wings. When we met that day, uh, I asked him. I said, man, I really do want to fly the Chinook, but I I hate it that it's only got one machine gun on one side. Uh, and he said. He said, "Hey, uh, listen to that, Brady. The, the The Chinook has two machine guns on either side. One of them's not working. So, unfortunately, we gave you half the firepower during the demonstration. And I said, Mike, I don't care if only one of them's working. That thing's that thing's blazing out four thousand rounds a minute. I will, mm-hmm. I will take one. Uh, two will be a bonus, but I definitely want to fly that machine.'
0: Mm-hmm. Let's fast forward to uh, to two thousand and five and and share this story as we lean in on this day, seventeen years removed from twenty eight June." 2005. So we go to that day and essentially you've got to give a ride to the four SEALs who are going to embed in and begin this mission, right? Start, I think, what is the beginning of this mission. So take me to that day and, and your role uh, in quite literally Uber and those guys in uh, to the mountainside.
1: So uh, we had uh, begun planning Operation Red Wings for weeks before June 28th. Uh, first time I learned about it, I had a SEAL walk into our planning area at Bagram Air Base he said hey operation red wings what do you know uh, about it and so we, we kind of compared notes started looking at landing zone uh, site selections on the map talked about the overall mission and uh, just started to kind of think about how we could put them in by helicopter it's pretty uh, you know uh, unforgiving terrain up there obviously mm-hmm. to, to walk through for sure um, to land helicopters on so we knew from the beginning this was going to be a, a fast rope insertion kind of a mission uh, fast rope insertion is, you know, hovering as low as you can, kicking on a rope and then everyone fireman style, uh, down the rope onto the ground, a uh, quick way of getting troops in quickly to, to really tough terrain. So we started to select our sites, uh, for insertion, uh, continuing to the planning process, uh, until finally the day came June 27th. Um, and, um, you know, we, we kicked off the, uh, the mission preparation um, started to get everyone, you know, down to the, to the helicopters. And, and what our plan was, was we were going to put these four seals in, they were going to set up reconnaissance, a reconnaissance position overlooking the target area inside the Cornwall Valley. Um, and the following night, June 29th, that we were going to put in the rest of the seal platoon from, from which they came to reinforce them and then start to just put in some, more established fighting positions and Mm -hmm. observation positions around the valley Mm -hmm. the third night june 30th we were then going to put a marine battalion or or components of a marine battalion in there as a blocking force as those seals then moved in and apprehended who they needed to you know get out of there so it was a three-phase mission this was phase one of it um and uh You know, I just remember thinking, man, this is this is pretty gnarly terrain. If we put guys in there, especially such a small number, it's gonna be be pretty difficult to get them out. So, um, you know, it it wasn't without risk. uh, But um, you know, they they knew what they wanted to do, where they wanted to go, and 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 what the cost was of inaction as well. So it was decided that we would we would continue on and and put them into this into this valley. Um,
0: the four seals that ultimately uh, go in first are Michael Murphy, Matthew Axelson, Danny Dietz, and Marcus Luttrell. And that's to yeah. begin what is the beginning of sort of this major three-piece movement that Matt's talking mm-hmm. through. Uh, if you've seen the movie Lone Survivor, which I know many of you have depicts it pretty well. Uh, you can also go back again, listen to Spanky's recount. Cause he also talks about then having to go pick Marcus up and just all the incredible technical difficulties that, that meant what happened after dropping those guys off with the various checkpoints that they were supposed to be at which point did you guys then know things were not going according to plan?
1: Right. So after we dropped them off, um, we flew down to a place called Jalalabad, which is just South of the target area. And our role was to
0: um,
1: do what's called standing QRF quick reaction force, which means, you know, if anything goes wrong. During the insertion or immediately following the insertion, we're really close by to where we can react to that with more firepower. So, um, uh, tank commander, uh, Christensen from the SEAL team and I, um, and uh, the rest of our you know, Night Stalker flight lead and the other you know, key players in this mission all convened at Jalalabad and watched the uh, watched the operations feed, right. We tracked them on audio. We we heard uh, Mike Murphy calling in the checkpoints, you know, um, you know to kind of note his progress through the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not really a tense time when these things happen. You know, everyone's kind of everyone's kind of loose. You know, listening to it go down. Everything was going pretty much according to plan. Um, you know, I do remember hearing Murph's voice calling the checkpoints on the radio. And man, they you know, seals are in, are in great shape, and and even he was out of breath. So when he would call these checkpoints in um, over uh, Dietz's radio, you know, just very labored breathing. You could tell it was really tough terrain. And I just remember thinking to myself, man, that is – it's got to be pretty pretty hairy down there if these guys are in such great shape or having trouble walking through this terrain with, with, with their gear. So, um, you know, they, they eventually came to their uh, what they called, uh, uh, you know, laying up spot or, or remain over day uh, point um and of course this is all happening at night and so when they got to that point uh commander christensen and i talked it over and he said okay this is kind of the end of this phase of the insertion um there's no need to wait here anymore let's go i'll go back to bagram and and let the the qrf that's here locally kind of take you know take over reaction responsibility so um christensen and i mcgreevy was another another one of the seals that we were uh, you know, just bonding with and getting to know as, as we were going through this, this mission. And we all got back on the, on the Chinooks, um, and then headed back to headed back to Bagram. You know, again, the air of this time, the, uh, the, the sort of feel, overall feeling of this time was one of, of sort of laid back business as usual. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we headed back to the helicopter, Christensen was just kind of joking, you know, he, he was just kind of giving me a hard time about the helicopters that we flew. And I was giving him a hard time about being a SEAL. He, he, had, uh, he had taught at the Naval Academy um, and I had actually spent a semester of college attending the Naval Academy um, as an exchange cadet. And so some of the SEALs, I, I knew personally, uh, we'd gone to school together. And so um, shared a lot of stories about Annapolis. Um, uh, just Just talked, you know, pretty pretty laid back conversations. Uh Christensen asked why I flew such a heli uh, an ugly helicopter. <laughs> and I and I told him that, you know, they're they're not much to look at, right? They're pretty ugly. I get that. But they 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 do hard work and they get the job done. A lot yeah. like Navy SEALs, right? Yeah. And so <laughs> so it's just kind of you know jabbing each other and having a good time and, and getting back on the Helos and heading back to base. So it wasn't until um, you know, and typically what we do is we you know, we sleep during the day, doing a nice doctor missions at night. And so it was, it was only a couple hours later that I was woken up in broad daylight. And someone said, you know, you gotta get to the operations center, the, mm-hmm. the SEAL has been compromised. Um, and which seemed like a, a dream, it didn't seem possible because we had just put them there. Everyone had just, you know, sort of agreed that, hey, they're in a good spot. There's, there's nothing out of the ordinary going on. And, and it just seemed like this was just gonna be another mission. So getting woken up that quickly, in broad daylight it was a bit of a, a jolt but that was my first indication that we need to you know spring into action yeah.
0: it's, it's a twist of fate really that ultimately springs all those next steps into action where they are compromised and have to make a major decision and then essentially have to face off uh, with the enemy where they're incredibly outnumbered and what ultimately ends up happening is is we've got to go in and and try to try to get them right is that where Chinook number two I mean, sort of the, the second round in? uh, where that Chinook gets ready to go in and go get those guys. Can you, can you walk me through that part? And then what you guys are doing with the time that we have to prepare for that and kind of your role in that.
1: Yeah. So my role in this was, um, as the quick reaction force leader. So, um, quick reaction force is something that, that is duty that we will pull during our mission cycle. And we're asked to react to troops in contact, you know, high priority events that are occurring in our area of operations. And so I was the quick reaction force leader for this shift essentially. The weird thing is we, we were not pulling quick reaction force duty for the SEALs because that, that, you know, that would mean that we were pulling quick reaction force standby during the day. And that, that wouldn't have happened because we don't fly during the day unless we're all on that cycle. You, you get my drift. So yep, yep. we're on a nighttime cycle. We pull QRF at times for the nighttime forces that we're putting in during the night. And we usually pick them up off the battlefield at the tail end of the night as the sun comes up. So, so the quick reaction force uh, that was standing duty for uh, this seal team was a force out of what's called siege of Soda, the special operation forces, Uh, task force that typically operated during the day and operated in this area and the Marines were taken on or tactically controlled by that task force. And so they were, they were providing QRF services. Um, So when I say I was a QRF leader, I wasn't really, you know, on duty. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I got woken up, it was very confusing to me. Right. So how, how can we, all right. So I, I I to just kind of look at my men, look at the situation, say, okay, Who's reacting to the situation? Well, the answer was nobody. Okay, well, then we will, right? And so that's, that's what we did as Night Stalkers. And, and we've got you know a couple of promises that we make and that we keep. And one of them is if we put you into a situation, we're gonna stop at nothing to get you back out again. We don't care what the plan is. We don't care who's tasked to get you out or who's on the hook to be quick reaction. If the reaction isn't happening, then we're gonna react because we put you in there so we you know we basically generated a quick reaction force from from nothing um we we uh we you know broke open the playbook okay this is how we would normally do it during the night for the rangers um uh, so let's put that in motion okay which aircraft would we use all right turbine 33 three, right Tail number 146 that's what we would normally use for quick reaction force all right let's get that going you know, do we wake up the Rangers instead of the quick, quick reaction force, you know, assigned with us? Well, no, because they're not on cycle right now. Um, all right. So who are we going to use? And that's when I got together with Commander Quick Christensen. And he said, OK, we're going to be the quick reaction ground force on the bird. OK, no problem. So we we're kind of piecing together a quick reaction force from a very established playbook, but one that was being utilized in sort of an ad hoc way.
0: So it was Christensen and seven other SEALs in, right? So it's eight additional SEALs, eight mm-hmm. Night Stalkers that then make mm-hmm. up this QRF that correct. are going to launch in and, go, and try to go get these guys.
1: Correct, correct.
0: And you're sitting in the pilot seat of the Chinook preparing to go get them.
1: Well, I'm on board aircraft finishing up the last-minute checks and about to um, you know, occupy my seat. And that's when uh, my uh, commander, um, Major Stephen Reich, uh, gets on board. Now, Major Reich is a experienced night stalker. Uh, he commanded Bravo Company at the time, which was all of us. And um, he approached me, asked me what my plan was. And so I told him, I said, you know, I just huddled with Christensen. He wants me to put him on the high ground. I think that's going to be generally this area over here, pointing at the map. And I just kind of walked him through my logic. And he said, okay, that's great, Brady. Um, but everything involving you, uh, we're not going to do. So where you said you were going to do X, Y, and Z, uh, that's going to be me. Now you're going to get back to the operation center. And that was a, that was a real punch in the gut. Mm. Um, that's kind of like, I've used this analogy before. It's kind of like, uh, you know, Bill Belichick or the Patriots calling a timeout and, you know, running onto the field and Mac Jones, you know, uh, was Brady when I first <laughs> used this analogy, but, you know, saying, Hey, Mac, go ahead and take a knee uh, on the sidelines. I'm going to run the play. And then you can just kind of watch and talk to the offensive coordinators. You know, I mean, that's essentially what he was yeah. doing. And so yeah. I was, I was pretty furious.
0: You, you likely didn't have time or it, it just, it doesn't, to me, I could be wrong. It probably doesn't make a lot of sense for you to get into that with him. Then like why have a big, long drawn up conversation every minute counts. So, yeah, I so mean, you never get to discuss with him. Hey, why are you taking me out? Why? I mean, maybe you did, but like, why do you think he did that in that moment?
1: Yeah. Um, so there was there was the uh digestible answer that he was pitching to me, and then there was the real answer. Mm. The digestible answer was, all right, Matt, um, you're not aligned with this mission because it's not really a QRF. Uh mm-hmm. since we're not on QRF, this is just tonight's mission, phase two, and we're doing it earlier than planned. Mm. Um, and I said sir, you, you know, that doesn't make any sense, right? Everything's changed, right? This is right. a reaction, this right. is no longer the plan. We're now pulling an audible. Um, and he said, you know, that, that's great input, captain, uh, but get off, right? So his reasoning for why he did that was that, you know, doctrinally and, you know, I guess from a scheduling perspective, you know, he was gonna be taking it, but um, there was a lot communicated in those, in those 30 seconds to a minute. Um, we both knew the stakes. We both knew, uh, this potentially could go South very quickly. Um, and he was the kind of man that felt that if anyone, if he was going to ask his men to take risks and potentially lose their lives, he would never point his finger at the, at the Valley or on the horizon and say, you guys go do it and uh, see you when you get back. If you knew there was that much risk involved, he was going to be part of it.
0: I think so, that tells us pretty much everything we need to know about Steven Reich yeah, in that absolutely. moment. Uh, absolutely, for sure. The combined uh, eight and eight, right, which is 16 more than head in, um, and it's unfortunately an unsuccessful retrieval because that Chinook goes down. Matt, it, it's a, that's a hell of a turn of events, man. And I know you've talked about it a lot. And we are grateful for you doing it today. And we don't take for granted what it means to, to go back into that space and do it. But what a hell of a turn of events is all I can really say about.
1: Yeah, it, it really was. It was, um, you know, they, they, they gave the last full measure of devotion, um, doing a job that they loved protecting a nation that they loved. Um, and they did it without hesitation. Um, when that occurred, and the shoot down was confirmed. We had, we had one job, which was, you know, never leave a fallen comrade behind, uh, to fall into the hands of the enemy. That was job number one. So, um, you know, we had to then remount, um, another rescue mission, right. To rescue the rescuers. And, um, there's a lot that goes into that right i mean you know you've got you've got these emotions that tug at you and this this goes for the the men uh you know that are doing the really hard work right the the, the uh you know you know prepping that those aircraft getting those guns ready loading the the bullets getting the whole thing uh, mission ready the flight lead pilots um, the real experts that crew these machines every night for years in combat zones, you know, they had a real task ahead of them, which was go back into the teeth of the enemy, find our buddies, and get them out safely. Um, and uh, you know, to ask them to do that in the face of this kind of risk, uh, it's just it's a it's a willingness to go above and beyond uh, by these men that i'll never I'll never forget.
0: Yeah, but you know, not a single one of them had to been pushed up a ramp onto an aircraft or walked up there, every single one of them would have ran into that opportunity to go do that. And the reason I think why we tend to lean in on it so much here is that, is that incredible message that is built into this story in which heaven and earth has moved to go get Marcus and heaven and earth is moved to go get the 16 others because we can't leave them behind. You know, uh, Murph's dad joined me and he talked about, um, uh, this guy that's basically sat with Mike's body waiting to get picked up after mm-hmm. they retrieved him. Mm-hmm. That's what we do, right? That's what America does. Yeah. Um, which is incredible. And I know that's not lost on you guys listening and obviously not on you Matt for being such just a, a big part of it.
1: Yeah. You know, it, these guys would do it all over again. I think both sets of, of crews, right. I think turban three, three, do it again. Uh, that crew, uh, they were standing here today, sitting around us. They'd say, absolutely, we'd make the exact same decision. Yep. Um, when I, I know when I talk to the crew of the follow-on Turbin 33 rescue force, for asking the same thing, exact same answer. We wouldn't hesitate. We'd go in a second. It's, it's you know, the burden that I feel that you know um, when I ask them to, to to do these things, right? And so. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. There was no doubt that they were going to rescue their buddies and do it immediately and move heaven and earth to get this done. But there was one point in time when one of the flight lead pilots for the rescue of the rescue team. So these are the guys that I would be flying with to get Turban 33 and her and her occupant and her um, precious cargo. Right. You know, I remember this flight lead pilot looking at me, briefing his plan, me saying, okay, this is, this is absolutely how we need to do it. And, uh, we're ready and let's execute. I remember him looking at me and, and asking me to kind of, to kind of give the order.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: And, uh, and I, I remember that distinctly because it wasn't an odd thing to do, but it was a, it was a, it was a duty that he, he made sure I fulfilled, mm. um, Almost, almost to say, okay, Matt. You know, this is you know, this is your duty. This is your responsibility too, and we're going to do it. But you need you need to say it because you need to feel that ownership, right? Uh, and again, this wasn't communicated. This was all kind of in a. This was this was partially communicated, partially nonverbal. But I looked at at the guy and, and I said, "Yeah, absolutely. Let's execute, right?" And he just kind of smiled and, and turned around and walked off. But you know, people. People know that that this is something we have to do. It's our duty. But at the end of the day, they also want to know that everyone's in it with them, right? Yep. Um, so we, you know, we 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 uh, uh, were able to put more seals and rangers onto the site. They secured the uh, the, the downed aircraft um, uh, area. They secured the remains, and then we we flew in to uh, to retrieve the the remains uh, a night or two later once the weather cleared. Um, uh, we landed at the site it was a it was a harrowing landing zone i mean it, it was a it was wasn't really a landing zone where Turbine three 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 finally came to rest it was just the most level place we could find uh, but really tough to get in there um, and uh when we did and, and of course you know we we would land on a you know uh, you know on the moon if we needed to to get mm-hmm. these guys out but once we loaded them, the flight back to Bogham air base with the sixteen uh, remains set to remains, you know, not a word was spoken the entire time inside that aircraft. Uh, we flew, did a lap over Bagram air base and we could see, um, you know, thousands of people, uh, gathered around the airstrip, gathered around where we were going to land, um, just wanting to show their support. And we landed and, uh, you know, just teams of people, uh, showed up at the ramp to take, uh, the, uh, the remain bags off board and, and carry them with dignity to the, to the uh, uh, you know, their next sort of uh, area where we would, you know, make sure that they were fully prepared to make the final trip home to the States. So um, nothing, you know, needed to be communicated or exchanged, but everyone just knew what to do. Yeah.
0: Those are, those are moments that I know you will never forget. And even as we sit today, 17 years removed, I'm sure you can, close your eyes and, and picture that incredible amount of support, like you said, from the, from those thousand, that thousand below on a day like today, I know it means a lot to you every day, but do you do anything specific? What do you do on a day like today? And and how much do you think about Steven and what he ultimately did in that moment?
1: Um, you know, I try to, uh, say a prayer for each one, uh, of the fallen night stalkers and fallen seals. Um, I say a prayer for their families. Um, you know uh God has always been important to me, and my faith has always been important to me but this this uh event um you know just reaffirmed that faith, so uh I usually just spend it quietly uh in prayer in in uh, fellowship with my family close friends uh and um you know we'll just think about them and the sacrifice they made and how important it is for this country to have people like that um you know, we wouldn't be where we are today were people not willing to uh, just go that extra mile and, uh, and you know, do the, the, the mission that this country needs to do in order to secure our freedom. So we just say a quiet prayer of thanks uh, to them uh, and to those like them that came before and just pray to God that we'll continue to develop leaders like them that continue to do the really hard things that no one else will do for, from this day forward.
0: In those moments of adversity and in tragedy, may we not run from our faith. May we run towards it and embrace it to carry us through those moments of hardship. There's an important message there that Matt just delivered to you guys at the end, talking about running towards it, leaning into it, uh, and trusting in something that's a lot bigger than us. Matt, we're so grateful for you for taking time on this important day to honor those warriors, to share your story with us. And to take a little bit of time today uh, to ensure that we not forget those who have made that ultimate sacrifice so that we can continue to do what we do in what is still the freest country on the planet. Thank you, sir.
1: Hey, it's been my pleasure, Brian. Um, and uh, just uh, two mottos that continue to live on in these esteemed communities. Long live the brotherhood for the Navy SEALs. "Night Stalkers don't quit for the
0: 160th sore." Thanks a lot for your time. He's Matt Brady. I'm Brian Jodas. That's been this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast.